If you have your Bibles today, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to two places, both in Isaiah, Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 57. We will be in Isaiah 57 first, but Isaiah 6, Isaiah 57, and welcome to week 12 of our Names of God series, and what a series it has been. And here's what we know, names mean something. So names mean something, and yet God's name or God's names mean everything. They mean everything, and God has a name for every need that we will ever have. And this morning, we come to the loftiest name of God found in Scripture. It is the name Holy. It's the name Holy, or in Hebrew, Kadosh. And holiness, we know, is what makes God, God. The holiness of God sets God apart from everyone and everything else. God is in his nature, holy, his word is holy, his ways are holy, his attributes are holy, and his name is holy. And the only two instances in scripture where men are permitted to see into the throne room of heaven and to see God in all of his glory, Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, both of those instances, they hear angelic beings declaring the holiness of God. When man, albeit for a moment, get a glimpse of God, it's always God's holiness that overwhelms him. Therefore, what we must see more than anything else, what we must desire more than anything, is to see God for who he truly is, to see God in his fullness. And we live in a world where many people struggle to believe in the existence of God, or if he does exist, can we actually even know him? Others believe in him, but when the subject of an intimate personal relationship comes up, they are left silent. And then there are a lot of people who, they say they have a relationship with God, but at the same time, they're confused as to why they don't seem to feel any deep emotion or affection for him. And all of these issues are addressed in having an encounter with a holy God. If there was ever a religious-sounding word, it is the word holy. Regardless of the context, most people, when they, probably, when they hear holy, they think of maybe cathedrals. Some might even think of a rosary or saints. Some might think of a stained, stained glass or communion or maybe the sound of monks chanting. I, I don't know what you might be thinking, but I do know that the word holiness means different things to different people. Have you ever just considered how frequently the word holy is used? We say holy cow, holy moly, holy mackerel, holy Moses, holy smoke, holy roller. And I'm not even going to address other ways in which the word holy is sometimes used. But think about this. It, it should be no surprise to us that the world in which we live is often unimpressed when we say that God is holy. Yet the holiness of God, you know, it's like it's the most unpopular, most neglected attribute but we neglect it to our own detriment we choose to focus on other things we'd rather focus on his love or his kindness his goodness his grace his mercy and all of those things we need to focus on yet think about this of all the things that god has called in scripture he is called holy the most 30 times alone in the book of isaiah he is called the holy one not the merciful one, not the compassionate one, not the all-powerful one, but the holy one. 
And all told, the Bible uses the word holy 637 times. In the Bible, God's holiness is his central, defining, foundational attribute. R.C. Sproul, it's a name you'll hear a few times. I, I read a book by, by this man several years back called The Holiness of God, and it wrecked my life for the better. Encourage you to grab that book, R.C. Sproul, The Holiness of God. But he says this, put it, we're going to put it on the screen. Any attempt to understand God apart from his holiness is idolatry. Try to define God apart from who he is as holy God. You will find yourself in idolatry. God's holiness is his defining character. In fact, God's holiness is so overwhelming that it can even be dangerous to approach. It's helpful to think about God like the sun. The sun is so bright and powerful that its energy radiates throughout our solar system. And it's good, it's helpful, it's beneficial for us to be within the sun's energy. But it's also, the sun is so powerful that we dare not get too close. In fact, we get too close and what happens? Okay, we burn up. We no longer. What in scripture where we see examples of mortal men approaching God the same metaphor plays out. Man doesn't want to get too close for fear of burning up in his presence. So let's turn to the word this morning and see the brightness of God's holiness, which is the totality of who God is and all that his name, holy, forever represents. So we're going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to begin in Isaiah 57, just reading verse 15, and then we're going to turn and read Isaiah 6, 1 through 7 together. So Isaiah 57, 15 says this, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now, if we can turn to Isaiah chapter 6, <coughs> excuse me, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Again, we declare according to your word that your name is holy. Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. Help us today to get a glimpse of you see you for who you are and help us by your spirit to respond rightly to you to respond rightly god today to what we see to what we experience to what we hear meet us here 
Holy God, meet us here. Speak, we're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So holiness starts with God. Again, R.C. Sproul said the holiness of God is one of the most important ideas that a Christian can ever grapple with. It's basic to our whole understanding, not just of God, but of Christianity. And in reading Isaiah chapter 6, we're reminded that God is more powerful and he is more holy than our ability to even describe. To simplify it for us, holiness is the excellency of all that God is in whole or even in part. Everything that God thinks, everything that God purposes, everything that God does, indeed everything that God is, is altogether and consistently holy. And the reality here, when we jump into Isaiah 6, is we are confronted with a national crisis. The king of Israel has died. King Uzziah had reigned in Judah for 52 years. He was one of the better kings who had reigned over Judah. For most of his career, he was noted as a king who honored God. He was a beloved king. For many, he was the only king they had ever known. Now, the story of Uzziah ends on a sad note, 42 years into his 52-year reign. He is prideful. He busts into the presence of God, and God strikes him with leprosy for the remaining 10 years of his life. Yet, when he died, in spite of the shame of his last few years, it was a time of national mourning. People were asking questions such as, what would happen? Or what's going to happen to us? Who's, will the next king honor God? In the middle of this mourning and confusion, Isaiah went into the temple where he was reminded that although an earthly king had died, a heavenly king, the heavenly king, was alive and well. What he saw is there is a throne in heaven, and brothers and sisters, it's occupied. There's a throne in heaven, and God is on it. So Isaiah saw that although one king had lost his power, there is a true king who never will. Although one king saw his authority pass on to another generation, another king, the king of heaven, will reign from generation to generation. And while an earthly nation was mourning the passing of their king, the heavenly host was declaring the eternal excellencies of of their king, that he is holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of his glory. The the contrast is indescribable, yet we need to meditate upon the holiness of God until it becomes undeniable, until it becomes an undeniable part of our lives. So let's quickly unpack four deep truths concerning the holiness of God. Number one, our God is other than us. Our God is other than us. God's holiness is not just that God is without sin, although God is without sin. God's holiness also means that God is without equal. None can compare to him. Although I put verses 2 and 3, let me just read verse 3. You'll see on the screen. And one of the seraphims called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and God isn't just different from us as if he's the best of a lot of our characteristics just elevated to a higher degree no God is other than us he's holy 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 some have even taught that the three holies 
are declared to represent the holiness and the fullness of the Trinity. That God the Father is holy. God the Son is holy. God the Holy Spirit is holy because that just makes sense. But although this doesn't seem to be the ultimate reason, this is a reminder that God is different from us. That he is other than us. He's in a class all by himself. You know, how great is the, the holiness of the Lord of hosts? Great enough to fill the entire earth. And these words are, are crafted to take our mind to a place where our minds don't often like to go. They're meant to blow our minds with the thought that God is unlike anything that we've ever encountered. The Lord of hosts is holy, 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 earth-filling, and gloriously holy. The Lord of hosts is the sum definition of what it means to be holy. He occupies a moral space that nothing or no one else can fill. And therefore, we have no experience or frame of reference to understand him. This is the reason why many people settle for creating a God in their image. Creating a God that's more palatable. Creating a God that's more understandable. Or creating a God in their image that's less holy. Yet the heart of Isaiah's vision is that God is altogether holy, holy, holy. Most scholars believe that the grouping of these three holies is used as a sign of reference. It's making it super important. Think of the word holy with a hundred exclamation points behind it. That's what we're trying to get at here. And only one time in scripture is an attribute taken and elevated to the third degree. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 even though God is love. The Bible never says that God is gracious, 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 or merciful, 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 even though God is gracious and merciful. The Bible never says that God is power, 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 even though he is all-powerful. But the Bible does say that he is holy, holy, holy. And the whole earth is full of his glory. May we never forget who he is. Is And may we also never forget, please hear this, that a God that is small enough to be totally understood is not big enough to be eternally worshipped. Let me say it again. A God that is small enough to be totally understood is not big enough to be eternally worshipped. Yes, we'll never, we'll never understand this God. But let me tell you this. We'll never be able to, we'll never run out of anything or things to worship him for. We will eternally worship him. He is other than us. Number two, our God is ever over us. He is ever over us. So Isaiah saw the heavenly throne room. And more importantly, he saw the one who was on the throne. Look at verse one on the screen. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And that's not just a throwaway line. In the ancient Near East, a king's greatness was displayed by the length of his train. So while all these human kings are fighting with one another to have long trains on their robes to show their greatness, Isaiah saw the all-consuming majesty of God blanketing everything like an overflowing train. His train filled the temple. And the Lord was on his throne. Don't miss it. It's an interesting fact that of the 47 mentions of the word throne in the New Testament, 35 of them appear in the book of Revelation. 
So what do you think that means? So 35 of the 47 times the word throne appears in the New Testament, it appears in the book of Revelation when everything is breaking loose. What's the significance? And the significance is this. At the craziest time in human existence, the king will still be on his throne. The king will still be on his throne. And what that tells us, please don't miss this, is when the world seems dark around us, when our country seems to have lost its ever-loving mind, let me say it again, when our country seems to have lost its ever-loving mind, when our world seems to have lost its ever-loving mind, when things are really terrible and everything feels like it's out of control, we get a glimpse of our God, and he is not panicked. He is not wringing his hands. He is not sweating. He is on his throne, and he is ruling. He is reigning, and he is even overruling. This is who our God is. And if you were to ask, well, how is God's holiness revealed? The only answer would be in everything he does. Everything God does reveals his holiness. Everything he thinks Everything he desires, everything he speaks, everything he does is holy in every single way. Every attribute of God is holy. God is holy in his justice, in his love, in his mercy. He's holy in his power, in his wisdom. He's holy in his patience and his anger. He's holy in his faithfulness, his grace, and even his compassion. He's even holy in his holiness. Again, this is really difficult for us to shrink down to our size, but we, we can't just, we can't do that, and we must not try to shrink God down to us. In the end, our God is holy, that he is God, he is incomparable. He's above us, exalted over us, and he is worthy of something from us. He's worthy of our all. Let me read the very first part of Isaiah 57. For us once again, thus says the Lord, the one who is, who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Our God is ever over us. But then number three, our God puts terror within us. Our God puts terror within us. Look at verse five. You see on the screen, and I said... This is the prophet speaking, woe is me. Just stop for a second and don't miss this. Isaiah, in seeing the holiness of God, the first thing he said was, may I be condemned. That's what he's saying. He's basically saying, I'm about to die. I'm about to die. I'm dead. For I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of Host, don't miss this. Isaiah's first response wasn't to go, wow, this is awesome. Wasn't to get out his cell phone and take a selfie with him and God so he can post it on his, his account so everybody can see how godly he is. No, the first thing he does is say, I just saw God and I'm about to die. I'm done. The, the word I am lost, it means I'm undone. It means I'm unraveling. He was unraveling in the presence of a holy God. Let me just say this this morning, and please hear this. The Bible is very, very clear that our biggest problem is not that we feel guilty. Our biggest problem is that we are guilty. We are guilty before a holy God. Our biggest problem is not that we have too low a view of ourselves. Our biggest problem is that we have a too low a view of God. 
We have brought him down to our level again and again and again to where, hear this, we have no fear of him. Tell that to Isaiah. Tell it to Ezekiel. Tell it to John who fell down dead at Jesus' feet. Have no, we have no fear of him. I think of the words of Matt Lucado who said, you don't impress the officials at NASA with a paper airplane and you don't boast about your crayon sketches in the presence of Picasso. Our pride speaks to the truth that we don't live in the presence of the king. For when you see the king, all your pride disappears. When God goes public with his glory, an imbalance occurs between God and those who see him. An imbalance occurs. It's like Niagara Falls introducing itself to the leak underneath your kitchen sink. Or it's like Mount Everest making itself known to the concrete in your driveway. Or the Sahara Desert visiting the dust that lives in your house. There's going to be an imbalance that's going to take place there. And yet, this is a picture of the imbalance of us and God. C.S. Lewis once said, Many people talk about meeting God as if it would be a warm, cozy experience. But please hear this. They need to think again. C.S. Lewis said, think again. So the picture that, skip, that Scripture gives time and time again is that God's holiness is terrifying. The angels have their faces covered. The pillars of the temple are shaking. And the godliest person in Israel, Isaiah, is saying, I'm about to die because I'm seeing God. May God curse me because that's how sinful I am in his presence. Write this down. The sign that you don't know God very well is that you feel pretty good about yourself when you compare yourself to him. That shows you you don't know God very well. If you think of God and you think of yourself and you go, I'm doing pretty good. You don't know God very well. Listen, it's not just God here and you here. You're like, I'm doing pretty good. Because here's the problem. When we think that way, it's because... We're comparing ourselves with everyone else instead of comparing ourselves with God. If what you do in every moment is go, well, I'm better than so-and-so, I'm better than them, or, of course, the universal standard, I'm better than Hitler. I mean, that's like the universal standard. I'm better than Hitler, so I must be good. Listen, if, if you want, and we, we get there so often of comparing and, and all of these things, and we go, well, We've all messed up, so God has to grade on a curve, yet God never will. God will never lower his expectation. An encounter with God is always a traumatic experience. Like I said three times in Scripture, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, Revelation 1, where men give a, are given a glimpse of God. They're filled with terror. They're filled with fear. It's not a warming experience for them. And then think about the seraphim. This is the only place in Scripture that the name seraphim is given. It means burning ones. They are literally burning up in the presence of God. Now, these aren't fallen angels. These are angels who have never sinned. They're holy and that they're, yet, they're without sin, yet they're not equal with God. For even they must shield their faces. They must shield their feet in the presence of God. So we're reminded that these burning creatures are just that. They're creatures. And even though, even though they've never sinned, they're forever reminded that God is God. And they're not it. Meaning, the holiness of God will forever keep them in their rightful place. And the holiness of God, if we know it, will keep us in our rightful place. 
Several years ago, a study went out throughout the church as a whole that revealed the main reason most people stopped attending church. The number one reason given was that most people said they were bored by church attendance. So then they no longer found church to be a thrilling, moving experience. So what did the church do to counteract that? They wanted to make church as entertaining as possible. The problem with that, of course, is that it puts man at the center of worship and not God. Let me just be very clear here. Be very, very, very careful about letting sinful people be in charge of what we do in the church. I'd rather say, this is what the word of God says. Let's go by that. But let me just say this. The goal of what we're doing here this morning is not your entertainment. The goal of what we're doing this morning is the worship of God. If you leave here today going, well, I didn't like the songs that we sing. Well, good. They weren't about you. We weren't singing to you. We were singing to him. May we never forget that. May we never forget that reality. It's not about how the song resonates to me. There are, listen, there are songs that Brother Frank will sing in the first service or even Morgan will sing in the second service that I've never heard. And I'm like, I don't know if I like that song. I don't know if I like it. And that's my little human nature. And you know what God does in that moment? He pricks me and I go, well, God, show me what it's saying about you. Show me what it's saying about you. And every single time God shows me something that it's saying about his faithfulness, his goodness, his power, his grace, his mercy, and it ministers to my heart immediately in that moment. But think about this. When God appeared in the temple, even the doors and the thresholds shook. They trembled. And the Bible says, who is now the temple of God? We are. We're the temple of God. So if inanimate objects can tremble and shake in God's presence, what's our response? What's our response? How can there be the slightest indifference or coldness or routine or ritual or mindless habit when God abides in us and when we're here to make much of him? What's our response to God? Even the wood and stone had the good sense to shake in God's presence, do we? Do we? Our God puts terror within us. But then, number four, our God gives comfort to us. Our God gives comfort to us. Look at verses, or Psalm 98, verses 1 and 2 on the screen. The holiness of God comforts us because it leads to our salvation. Oh, sing the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand, his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. So the doctrine of the holiness of God sits at the center of the grand narrative of the gospel. Without the holiness of God, there would be no moral law which we would be responsible for. Nothing that shows us how we have missed the mark and fallen short of God's glory. Nothing that shows us our need for a Savior. Without the holiness of God, there would be no divine anger against sin where God says the man, the soul that sins must surely die. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is still death. Without the holiness of God, there would be no perfect son who comes as an acceptable sacrifice for sin. Without the holiness of God, there would be no vindication in the resurrection where Jesus conquered sin and the grave. Without the holiness of God, there would be no final defeat of Satan. Without the holiness of God, there would be no hope of a new heaven and a new earth where holiness will dwell over us, but holiness will also live in us. 
Listen, every situation, every terrible circumstance that you have gone through, that you are going through, that you will go through, is under the careful sovereignty of one who is completely holy. It might not always feel that way, but God is in control. What he does is always right. What he says is always true. What he promises, he will always fulfill, always. Preach that to yourself over and over again. In fact, preach this to yourself over and over again. Evil is not in control of your life. Injustice is not in control of your life. Corruption is not in control of your life. Cancer doesn't have the last word in your life. Satan will not have the victory in your life. God has the final word. And if you are a child of his, God gets the victory. And God is and forever will be worthy of our trust for one simple reason. He is holy. He is holy. And our holy God is also a gracious God. So where does a look at the holiness of God lead us? It leads us to celebrate his grace. Look at the very end of verse 7 of Isaiah 6. Isaiah cries out, woe is me, I'm undone sinful person i live in the midst of sinful people and a seraphim flies to him with a burning coal touches his mouth and and then in verse 7 it says and he touched my mouth and said behold this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away your sin atoned for brothers and sisters because of his grace we are accepted and not rejected by him Because of his grace, we have become aware of the sin that infects all of us. Because of his grace, we run to God for help instead of running away from him in fear. Because of his grace, God appointed his perfect son to be the perfect savior and perfect sacrifice for us and imperfect people. Because of his grace, we experience both the conviction of our sin, but also the desire to live before him in holiness. And because of his grace, we have been invited to live in God's presence forever and ever. The holiness of God decimates our self-sufficiency and drives us to the Savior. So God reveals himself to us, and it's not a not a warning to run away from him. It's an invitation to run to him for the grace that he gives to us. But let me end today with the words of a 17th century scholar. Stephen Charnook writes these words concerning God. Power is God's hand or arm. Omniscience, his eye. Mercy, his affections. Eternity, his duration. But holiness is his beauty. The beauty of God is seen in the fact that he is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. Today, maybe for the first time, you see God in all his holiness and you see yourself in your sin. Cry out to God. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. Ask him to save you through what Christ has done for you. Call the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Maybe you're here today and it's been a long time since you dwelled on the holiness of God. Dwell deeper. Stay here. Stay here for as long as God lets you stay here. 
Just look at him. Keep looking. Look to him. Ponder his holiness. But also ponder his grace. So go ahead and ask everyone to stand. I'm going to call the, the band forward. Let's enter this time of invitation and consecration. Let us pray together. Father, we just again declare the words we read in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4. You are holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. God, help us in this moment to see your holiness to respond to you rightly. If there's any here listening online that have never called upon the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation, may today be the day. But also, may this be a day, Lord, where we as your children are have our eyes once again open to your holiness. That's what we need to see. We need to see your holiness. We need to be struck down, God, by your holiness. We need our pride attacked, God, by your holiness so that we may humble ourselves before you. For your word says, God, you give grace to the humble, not the prideful. So humble us, God, that we may receive more of your grace. Meet us where we are, God, but you are a God who gives grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen.